It's New Year 1993. You have been married twice. Both relationships are long over. You are unemployed. Your life is generally in the toilet. Do you decide to pick yourself up, shake yourself off and resolve as many do to make this year your year and turn everything around? Maybe a house move, a new job, go to the gym, sober January, lose those few extra pounds. Wanting to make changes to your life for the better is the normal reaction to New Year. One would hope that you do not decide that this year your resolution would be to become a serial killer and actually succeed by going on to commit five murders. But this is exactly what this week's subject did. And this is the case of Colin Island. And this is Murder Me on Monday. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Murder Me Monday podcast. I'm Cameron, and joined with me is Mother. Hello. So it turns out it's not Murder Me on every Monday, it's the occasional Monday. We skipped, like, two of the past four. And I guess it's because stuff's lifting, COVID lockdowns aren't quite as bad, it's summer. So we're, we're going to take the rest of August off. It's going to give Mother a chance to kind of get ahead on scripts, and me just fuck about and do what others, whatever I want, because I don't play a part in that thing, I just edit it. Maybe get some new equipment, get yeah. that up and running, learn all that. So, and about today's case... Because I already know, I can already, I have a little bit of information beforehand. It was Pride Month in June. It's June, isn't it? Yeah. Pride Month. And we've now entered August. And this, again, is just, it's got gay people in it, right? And they're getting killed. Now, when it was in, when it was Pride Month, it kind of made sense. Now we're just a podcast that talks about gay people dying. And it's looking really bad because I think the last, no, the last one wasn't, the one before that was. And I'm like, hang on. I think we're the baddies now. No, no, that's not fair. I mean, this one I found. Because of episode 25, um, which was the David Copeland case. Um, and I'd already started writing this and things had gotten really weird. And then I had a bit of an epiphany and just went with it. So that's why we're doing this one. I know we should, I maybe should have kept it for next year. I don't know, but I don't know. I just think the optics are a bit, a bit fucky at this point. Because at first it was, oh, I, I just can't find a case that involves LGBT people. Now it's like every case is a dead gay guy. <laughs> Well, I, the, the interesting part... All five of them, apparently. Well, well, yeah. And also as well, I've got somebody that's brains that I can pick around these things to actually get the background and the nuances of the scene in London. And that was useful on this one because I actually did... I didn't manage... I, when we were going to record this last week and it, things went wrong, I hadn't managed to talk, chat, have a chat with them. This week I did. Um, and I actually said to them, oh, do you know this pub? And they went, oh, yeah, been there. Once, twice, back in the 80s, 90s. And I said, was it what I think it is? And they went, oh, yes, it's a meat market. And I'm like, um... Is that a, a mint market or a meat market? What was right, that? okay. That, I, was, I was thinking about this one. We, we used to call it back in the 80s when us girls used to go out in the town, um, a meat market. And I think that goes back to London's Smithfield, which is the meat um, industry area where all the butchers and that rock up shop big people come in restaurants come in and buy big batches of meat and take it back to the restaurants in London and then you've got Billingsgate which is the fish market so when you, we actually use the term meat market I think it's very 1980s sort of genre type thing you can see with the connotation of it being a bunch of gay guys called a meat market it, it, it's completely I thought again like Vogue Balls I thought it was something completely different right so when he said meat market, I'm thinking, is this where 
Yes. You can see where I'm going with this yeah, kind of thought, it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, is this why this guy goes there? Because he knows that this is where all the gay people are. So he can, that's, I mean, he knows where they are. So you can pick them up. I well, guess. It's, it's a very specialist. I know Slayer Queen means different things in different circles, but I don't think this is what they meant. Well, it, it also got me thinking about um, Sex in the City, the TV series, and then the films. Samantha, the cougar, she ended, it, ended up living in what was called the Meatpacker District, didn't she? You're looking at me. But if anybody listening out there, there will be people nodding, knowing where I'm going with this. And she couldn't understand why everybody else thought it was funny. And us Brits found it funny. A meatpacker district has got a really twisted connotation. But it was actually quite a lot of sex workers in Sex and the City when they did that one as well. So back to the case. You said back to the case. We haven't started the case yeah. yet. Right. I got the pubs mixed up because I was looking for the Admiral Duncan, which I said, episode 25. But this one was actually described as a leather bar in its heyday. Um, but in 2008, it was turned into a gastro pub. So no tourist stuff, people. You can't actually go down and actually see it in all its glory. It's, it's not going on there. Sorry, Cam, warning. An animal does die, although two others are saved. So I learned a few things about S&M and the law. Um, as usual, all the links in the show notes. So the killer... Colin Island. You mean like BDSM, not just no, S&M? No, S&M. It was S&M in the time. That's, BDSM wasn't a, a label that was used in any of the reporting on this Yeah, but it, it's, it's evolved and the term, is yes. sort of, the, the term has changed. So even though it was labelled S&M then, it was probably still meant as a BDSM. It just, that's just not the, the, the term that was used at the time, but it's still appropriate to call it, it probably. probably a BDSM, yeah. I assume. Yeah, yeah you, you say, sorry, Cameron... There's, there's, a, there's an animal that dies in this one, but we're going to talk about BDSM with your child. That's weirder. I'm sorry. It is. I know that's like a, a hook for the podcast, but people listening, oh, it's funny. Ha ha. For me, it's weird, right? Yeah, but you're an adult, and I'm, I'm not going to get into too much graphic detail. Too much. There will be some, but there we go. So, get back to the killer. Colin Ireland. It's spelt the same as the country. He was born in Dartford in Kent which is about 19 miles south of London, for anyone wondering, on the 16th of March, 1954. He was the eldest of two boys, and his mother was 17 and working in a newsagent's when he was born. She was unmarried, and it, it was very much frowned upon back in 1954. Now, apparently his father left his mother shortly after his birth, and Colin and his mother lived with her parents for about five years. Now, his mother tried, but she was unskilled and she could only get part-time, low-paying jobs. They moved many, many times then, and it, it would have been hard as landlords often didn't like having children in properties and council housing was very hard to get, especially as an unmarried person. It, it really was heavily frowned upon. And they ended up staying in hostels uh, and such in Kent in places like Dartford and pl another place called Sheerness. It does read that all these house moves were all about his mother looking for independence. Right, I, I'm not being funny, but in the time of when this happened, why would she tell people she was unmarried? Couldn't she just say that the husband died? Yes, she could have done. There's no proof of this. Yeah. Why wouldn't you just wear a ring or something? The child doesn't know any different. They're a child. Or or even a baby. And you could just lie and say, yeah, I'm... You wouldn't have been able to get council housing. They would have wanted to have seen marriage certificates. Yeah, but that's that's something different with the council housing because that's only from the council's perspective. But from everyone else's perspective, you're saying it's like it's frowned it's upon. society, or it's shunned, yes. You could, you you could, could just lie and said, sure, my husband died. Or uh, he walked out or something. We were married. Yeah. You know, there are workarounds work with that. But I mean... 
I guess it's probably different. You say it's difficult for her to get any sort of living accommodation for being a single parent. And, and lying, like, oh, doesn't, you're not always, lying yeah. doesn't always come easy to people. And it's, it's about having the mental wherewithal to actually keep that lie up and actually remember that you've got a dead husband called Fred. I, don't, I think that's quite an easy lie to keep up when it's so important. Some people, yeah. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you, but she didn't. She didn't. They could, they could have gone back to the grandparents, and they did, it seems, a number of times. But eventually his mother did marry, and then she got pregnant in 1964 when Colin was aged 10. Now, the family were unstable, to say the least. The stepfather was, by all accounts, a good guy. He treated Colin well, which was actually really nice to hear. But um, his employment as an electrician was infrequent. And they were evicted from the rental home and they couldn't afford to look after Colin. So he was actually put into care. He couldn't get work in London as an electrician. No, it was it was the fact that his work was infrequent. I'm guessing he was self-employed. We are talking in the early 60s. Um, it, it's, it wouldn't. I was puzzled by that one. I was puzzled by that one. It would have been, under normal circumstances, you would have thought he would have been able to have more work than you knew what to do with, even back then. But for some reason, and it's not explained in anything... I mean, I know marketing is completely different. So nowadays, if you're a business, you have a Facebook, you have an Instagram, you have a social media presence, you can get your voice out there. Back in the day, it might have been only the big companies that did it, but a lot of people would have gone to independent traders but yeah but even with an electrician the problem is he's described as an electrician he doesn't actually state what type of an electrician because my mind was well, why isn't he walking up to a site and building site entrance with his tools in his bag which you could have done in those days definitely in those and said, days you got any work of and that would have been you know straight in normally but for whatever reason this is what happened and i don't understand why colin was put into care why he didn't go back to the grandparents there is no mention, I believe there was a, a possibly an uncle, the mother had a brother, but no relatives took him in. So he was put into care, which was, you know, fostering. He couldn't go to his father. Colin almost claimed he didn't know who he was and he wasn't named on Colin's birth certificate. And he's odd. He says his mother never talked about his father. But if they lived with the grandparents and they spent time with them, I don't know if they died or even if there was other. Somebody knew. I'm damn sure somebody knew. And I think it was, again, it's one of these ones where it was just hidden. Nobody would talk about it. Wherever there was a, a secret or whatever it was. So it was an odd state, set of circumstances. Anyway, 10 years old, he's in care. By the age of 12, his mother and stepfather were seemingly they were in a better place. And they took Colin back. So he was now part of the family of, of four. He, that must be so awkward to return to. That must be so difficult as a child to to get taken. Because I, 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 I thought he was going to have a really shitty time in care and that's what sort of led him down this path. It still might do. I don't know. We're not that far into the story yet. But to be put up for... To, to be put into the care system and then be taken back out to go back to the family at 12, you've had a... At that point, it's a sixth of your life away from them. It's just kind of... It's just kind of... It's just really sad, isn't it? Well, it doesn't get any better. Um, well, yeah, I know what happens. I can see the script notes, right? So the crypt notes. So I know it don't get any better. I mean, it gets a lot worse for five other people, but yeah, just, that just sucks. I think this is, that must be like really awkward and really sad for everyone involved. Well, the stepfather then left. The good guy. He was oh, a good guy. Okay, yep, got worse. Yeah. Yep. But another stepfather appears. And again, he seems to be a really good guy. 
Do you mean she got remarried again? Yeah. Not just he didn't just fucking appear. They, no. did, they, no, didn't, dis- they yes. didn't discover him. Under a cabbage patch. Yeah. Like at the end of the garden. No. So we've got another stepfather, but again, he seems to be a really good guy. I mean, this kid, he's had a really, really unstable life with all these moves. Two stepfathers um, living, you know, going into care for two years. There is, it's not good by any stretch, but he's also been really, really lucky by having two stepfathers that really did actually seem to care for him and they didn't abuse him. That's incredibly unusual. So, as I said, we've got the second stepfather. No obvious family problems, but Colin is a problem. He hated school. He didn't go or was late. Um, He was often beaten with the cane, which was, again, it was usual back then in the schools. Apparently, he wasn't the brightest. All right, now to bully him. Come on. (laughs) I was going to say, I I can't believe it's crazy. I I, I can't believe there used to be a thing that you would send your children to school knowing full well they might get their shit and piss beaten out of them by the teacher with a cane. Headmaster, yeah. That would just, like, like, I don't just mean even from today's perspective, but kids nowadays, man, they're big. If I, I was I was probably taller than most of my teachers, and half of them are females. So if they, if they come at you with a cane, they're getting they're getting hit with a cane. I when that, I was that, a... they thought that was an appropriate discipline for a child Girls... just to beat them with a stick. If a kid can't understand reason, so if a kid misbehaves and does something wrong, that means and they don't understand the reason behind it, they're not going to understand the reason why you're beating them in the first place. So beating them beating them won't fix the problem. It was about punishment, and that was the end of it. He he was late for school, so he got beaten. He was hit with a cane. It, as I said, Colin wasn't the brightest. He was a target for bullies due to his physical appearance. Um, and we all know kids will pick on someone for anything. Colin was tall, and he was gangly, and he was described as bow-legged. So he wasn't a physically attractive child. Now, there's this is where there's some oddity in the telling of the story, and it all comes from Colin much, much later. So a very large pinch of salt, probably a tablespoon. Colin says that he was approached on four separate occasions by older men wanting to have sex with him. The first of these encounters was when he was working at a fairground as a summer holiday job. Um, How old he, was he at this point? Um, he was somewhere round about the 12, 13-year-old mark. He was offered a necklace for his mother in exchange for a sexual act. Then again, when he was in the same sort of age mark, 12, 13, in a public toilet, a man peered over the top of the cubicle wall, you know, because the, the walls don't go up to the ceiling a lot of the public toilets, and he was watching him. And he offered him money. Didn't do anything, but offered him. And then his third encounter was at a cinema. He claims his optician saw him and asked him for sexual favours. And the fourth was a man working in a second-hand shop that Colin happened to go into, and again, the same thing. So Colin resisted their advances each time. There was never any physical abuse or sexual contact. But each time, according to him, an older man offered money or reward in exchange for whatever Colin would give them. There is a quote about how it left him feeling being poor and very, very angry. Now, I can imagine that, but I genuinely don't think those things took place. Or if they did, maybe once or twice, not the four times. I don't... I know these things happen, but I just don't think he... He was not... Anyway, yeah, now carry on. We'll leave that to the end. Why... Yeah, okay. I have yeah. I have comments. Yeah. His optician and a second hand shop. Yeah. That again, that sounds that's just a punchline in itself. It's writing its own joke. I'll wait till the end. Yeah. No. So he left school at sixteen, no qualifications, 
and it said he ran away to London. Um, he started stealing and probably inevitably ended up in Borstal at 17 years old. You say he ran away to London. I thought he was living in London. No, and I know you said they went to Kent. They li- no, they were living in Kent. Okay. Yeah, so he, 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 ran, he, he ran away to London and he ended up in Borstal at 17 years old. Borstals, for those that don't know, they were run by the prison service and were intended to reform young people. The word it's still usefully used to apply to other kinds of youth institutions and reformatories, such as approved schools and youth detention centres. The court sentence at the time was officially called Borstal Training. And Borstals were for offenders under 21. But in the 1930s, the maximum age was increased to 23. There was an act, there was a, a, a change, there was a Criminal Justice Act in 1982, which abolished the Borstal system and replaced them with youth custody centres. But in reality, they'd actually been slowly phased out since the late 1960s. Interestingly, I'm doing a deep dive, as of 2014, there were still 20 Borstals in operation in India, of all places. Were they ever sort of colonised? Yeah. I mean, obviously, but I mean, like, is there any sort of... Because I haven't heard that outside of the British. Yeah, well, they they've, got, they've still got the British legal context. system. In, yeah, in, that's, that's what I'm yeah. going to ask. Is because we've got like a yeah. we there's like a British yeah. thing out there. Yeah, that, that's weird. Yeah, um, they've still got inmates of over two thousand one hundred people. I don't know that that was all I could find up to 2014. I've got no idea if they were still in operation, but it was one of those things that made me go, "Oh, the intent behind a ball stool was good. It was to separate the younger, impressionable boys." A lot of, a lot of these things are, aren't they? Yeah. The, the, the start was good intent, but they're quite quickly... Yeah, it, it was to keep, keep yeah. the lads who got into trouble away from older lags who could teach them, teach them how to be better criminals, really. Yeah, it's, why is someone summoned to prison for having weed on them? And then when they actually go to prison, they go proper fucking criminals that can actually make them part of... Yeah. That's exactly what happens. Uh, it was supposed to be about re- rehabilitation and education, and a lot of these boys back then were illiterate. And it was meant to... They were supposed to be trained in trades and that, so when they were released, they actually had a chance. That, yeah, they can get something from it. Yeah, yeah. and it, it didn't work out too well. Uh, bullying and mental illness were absolutely rife. It was worse in borstals than it was in prisons, and the boys usually came out far worse than they went in. So, as I said, he's gone into Borstal at, seven, at 17 for theft. And if the reporting is true, it was for the princely sum of four pounds... I I I I have my doubts about why he would be sent to Ballstall for that first offence of four pound. I really do, but who knows? Anyway, um, while he was there, apparently he deliberately set fire to another inmate's belongings. <laughs> um, he also escaped and was sent back to Ballstall, and eventually served two years. So he's out in the early nineteen seventies, and he's back at Mum's. I think if you escape from prison and they recapture you. They should offer you time off from it because then you can say how did like they give you you, you they can give you information on how you escaped. You're well, like, oh, you've got this clear gaping fucking hole in your security system, and they can. I, I know where you're coming it's, from. It's like if someone's a computer hacker and they they hack into like, the, the fucking Pentagon, and they then get hired as a as a, like a cyber security because they because they know everything in the first place. It's the same thing if you can escape. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll knock like six months off. How the fuck do you do it? Car manufacturers do it though, don't they? They yeah, do. they get people to break to break into their cars yeah. who who are have been like arrested for that stuff in the past. If they're really sufficient or sorry, proficient in doing it, yeah, and actually ex- expose all the flaws. So it's interesting. So we're in the early nineteen seventies. He's out of Borstal and he's back at his mum's. Um, he then had a series of manual jobs. Hopefully, he'd got some training when he was in Borstal. But then in nineteen seventy five, he was convicted of car theft, criminal damage, 
and two burglaries, for which he was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment. Is a burglary the same thing as a burglary? Burglary, yeah. So he was released in November 1976, and he then moved to Swindon in Wiltshire, which is about 80 miles west of London. I've got no idea what drew him there. Um, New start, maybe? He lived with a woman and her children for a few months, and there was talk of marriage. How old is he at this point? 22. But he ups and leaves. So in 1977, he was convicted of extortion or demanding with menaces. That is a legal code. It's probably, you know, give me your wallet or I'm going to hit you kind of type thing. He got sentenced to 18 months imprisonment for that one. In 1980, he was convicted of robbery, for which he was sentenced to two years imprisonment, and so on. In 1981, he got convicted of attempted deception and got two months. What does that mean, attempted deception? It might have been something as simple as trying to um, use a forged £10 note. Yeah, yeah I, I wasn't sure what that meant in that context. Is it is it lying to the police about something that could be deemed... I wasn't lying, saying he went left when actually he went right. Could they moan, oh, you knew what way you went, okay, yeah, you're being be, deceptive. But yeah. yeah, when it's something like fraudulent, like a fake, yeah. fake £10 note or something. Yeah. But in 1982, he married a lady called Virginia. He met her at a survivalist convention of all places. Uh, the couple and her daughter from a previous relationship ended up living in the Holloway area of London. But in 1985... He was convicted and sentenced to six months for, and this is <laughs> this is word for word, going equipped to cheat. And I was, what, what the hell was that? Um, was that like a casino? Yes. Now, the, going equipped to cheat. When it, I had a, I had a, you idiot. You know exactly what that is. You were in London recently. Um, you, I was. I went to the Natural History Museum. That's why there wasn't a podcast last weekend because I was looking at. Skeletons and kangaroos in jars, basically. Yes. Well, if you were uh, down in Covent Garden, Leicester Square, they're the most places that you tend to see these. The last time I saw one of these things was in Oxford Street in the mid-80s. And you'd have a guy with a, a table and he would quite often have three cards. Yeah, it's full Monty. Yeah. yeah, it's exactly all of that. And then you'd have the runners and you'd have the police that alert them. So that is a going equipped to cheat. You've You've got no intention of doing anything that's honest. It is. It's not a game of chance. I know. It's it's often fake. They'll flick the card up their sleeve and you watch them all. Yeah, that's exactly what it. it. That's exactly yeah. what it was. Um, there was no other explanation, but that's exactly what it had to have been. This was a a, a crime under an act from 1958, which is actually replaced under. It's, a, it's not Ford. four Monty. It's three card Monty. Four Monty is like a Funglish breakfast. Yeah, it's three card Monty. Sorry. I thought it was male strippers on the stage, but that's a whole other system. Um, yeah, the Fraud Act 2006. So he's divorced 1987 after his wife discovered he'd committed adultery. And then skip forward 1989. So he was, a, sorry, I was drinking a coffee. So he was equipped to cheat then, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's down in Devon of all places. Um, again, he might have been looking for a fresh start. Do you have any... Uh, any information on what his parents are doing or his well, his mother and his stepdad at this point? Do you know how they're doing? Are they together? Because, I mean, she's tried. She's she's tried to get jobs, housing, support support him. They've had a second child with this other guy. She keeps marrying these nice guys, by all accounts. You'd like to think maybe she'd support him, but if he's troubled and then he's grown up sort of difficult ways, in and out of prison, not being able to hold down jobs or whatever, it's like, okay, how much can they support him 
when that's all they've tried. Is there, is there any information on them at this point? Only what comes from Colin. And according to Colin, he's got a wonderful supportive relationship with his mother. Okay. At least... Okay, if he's saying it, I don't see why he would lie. No, I don't see why he would lie, but I... We'll get into that further on. It's, it's one of those situations again. So, as I said, in 1989, he's down in Devon. He married somebody called Janet, who was a pub landlady. Apparently he's violent towards her, stole from her. And she and her children, she had a couple of children, they eventually lost the pub um, after he stole all the takings and they separated in the early 1990s. So he moves to Southend-on-Sea in Essex, which is 40 miles east of London, where he's homeless and he lived in a hostel where he also got a job there. Now... There's mention that there were unfounded allegations made against him. And what there were, we don't actually know. But he became more and more angry and difficult to work with, apparently. And he was fired. He says he quit. But, you know, he said, she said. Do we know if he'd had any hit on the head at this point as a child? No. Because a lot of this reckless behaviour, anger, etc. sounds like he's... Very early CBT TBI sort of injury. Yeah, but he's he's not he's not reckless reckless. He's stupid in the burglary. No, no like he is because he's he's committing all these crimes. He's stealing stuff from his missus. He runs a pub from the pub in the first place. Of course, the pub's going to be like, "Yo, fuck, where's our money?" It seems quite reckless with no f- forward planning with stuff, which to me would scream someone like who's been hit in the head a few many times, especially at a young age. Yeah, you're perfectly right. Maybe nobody ever actually asked those questions. I don't know whether his mother and his stepfather were still alive at this point. Um, There's nothing in in any of the reporting that would actually give that information. So nobody could actually go and say to her, did he fall out of a tree at some point? Did he get hit hit by around the head by with a cricket bat? I fell out of quite a few trees as a kid, and I'm surprised I didn't land on my head. That would explain a lot of things, but I don't think I ever did. Oh, God, Lord. That's news to me. Anyway, (laughs) yeah. Uh, New Year, 1993. This is where it all started with his New Year's resolution. Now, apparently, Colin had a fascination for serial killers. Um, he may not have been the brightest, but he, he, would, he was perfectly capable of reading writing. And he spent many hours reading up on them and studying them. And I know that feeling well. Yeah, and so you realise that that's the people listening to this now, don't you? People yeah. that have fascination yeah. with serial killers and crime. Yeah, well, apparently, according to the writings, he'd picked up some useful tips on how to avoid detection. And I bet our listeners have picked up on useful tips on how to like, favourite and subscribe to their favourite podcast. OK, that's the plug, Karen. Yeah, this, this is written down and I'm sat there thinking some of the behaviours, now, now you've talked about a TB, TBI, I don't know if it leads to a TBI, but there was definitely something not right because... It's almost as if he's got the complete switch of how he would play. It was really, it's really odd what eventually plays out. Because if you've picked up the tips on how to avoid to avoid detection, why would he then display the end behaviours that he does? But again, we'll get into that. The Colhern or the Colhern pub in Brompton Road, Earl's Court, West London, had a reputation in the gay community as a place to easily find a partner for the night, which is what we talked about in the beginning. So the cringe writing on this is quoted as being punters will wear colour-coded handkerchiefs to indicate their sexual proclivities, making cruising easy and avoiding misunderstandings. What? You looked as though you were going to say something. No, I'm just... No, 
Right. So Colin began frequenting the Colern on the 8th of March, 1993. Sorry, was that even fucking English? What did he say? He started, he started frequenting the... What? Colin began frequenting the Colherne on the 8th of March, 1993. So he started going to the gay pub? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You could have just said that. Yeah. Okay. This isn't Scrabble. You don't get marks for extra points, extra words and letters. He was travelling up from a train, by a train from Southend. So how he could afford this... He was, he, he was unemployed and claiming benefits. I don't know. What, how he travelled up there? Yeah, how could he afford these he trains? He probably didn't. He probably hopped the barriers. Yeah, that's true. 1989, well, no, 1993. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, probably. All that follows next is from what Colin told the police. They had their doubts about some of it. There were no witnesses. So what Colin says t- may, t- may have taken place may or may not be true. Obviously, some bits they could... Confirmed from forensics, but um, there was there were a little bit of CCTV. That's why I actually remembered this case, but very little. So, Colin, he was posing as a top, which apparently in the S and M uh, genre is a master dominant partner. No, that's known as a dom. A top is someone that so in, especially like in the gay community, you have like uh, a top and a bottom, as you can imagine within that context. Like a bottom is someone that is on the bottom, and a top is someone's on the top. It doesn't mean like... Yeah, no, it is apparently the master-dominant partner, and I knew that anyway. That might, But that's in more of like a traditional sense, not, yeah, not, not, not in like an S&M type or no. BDSM type thing. Yeah, apparently so. But we're going to argue about yeah. this, and we're actually not involved in that world, so I'm only going on the reporting, yeah? So when he met his first victim, it was a 45-year-old choreographer called Peter Walker. Peter was a bottom, so he was a submissive. And he had approached Colin in the pub and the two left together, heading off to Peter's apartment in Battersea. So Peter willingly, according to Colin, allowed Colin to gag him with knotted condoms. And I'm sat there thinking when I read that, duff reporting again. If I remember rightly, the bloody things are greased and I'm damn sure it wouldn't be easy. I've got memories of parties when we tried blowing them up. Um, you can't tie a knot in the end like a balloon. It just doesn't. So I don't see how he would have been able to tie him up with condoms, but apparently so. Have you seen what happens when, he's, when if you drive along and you stick a condom outside the window? No. It fucking blows up and it goes like six foot long. It's amazing. People listening to this, Google that. Oh, uh, yeah, YouTube it. It looks fucking amazing. Honestly, they just stick it out the window and it head. expands. It goes like, boom, and it's massive. Dear yeah. Lord, that would be funny. Um put me off his stroke as they say um, he, he also allowed him to bind him up with cord to a four post bed he was told it was going to be some foreplay and of course it turned violent So because Colin had come prepared with a murder kit um, he had the cord a knife, a pair of gloves and a change of clothing so once Peter was tied up Colin used a dog lead I don't know where he got that from because it could easily be played off as a sex thing. Yeah. If they've got a dog lead, it could be like yeah. um, pet yeah. play or whatever. Yeah, yeah. but there's, there's no mention of where that came from. Um, a belt and his fists to administer a, apparently a really vicious beating. And then when he's he was just so riled up, he pulled a plastic bag over Peter's head and killed him by suffocation. So Peter's lying there, dead. Colin decides to set um, Peter's pubic hair on fire. Apparently, he wanted to know what it smelt like. I'm not sure pubic hair smells any different to hair on the head, and we've all 
singed our hair on our heads at some point. See, this would be really funny if we had sponsors for this show because that would be a perfect segue to be like, oh, but do you know what? Do you know what you couldn't have done because if you were, if we were sponsored by Manscaped, you wouldn't have fumes to set on fire. Well, yeah. Or, or you'd be like, there. <laughs> their powder stuff they can use to make sure they're not sweaty is fireproof like you can pick it up do you know what I mean why would you set someone's pubes on fire I've like burnt my hair or set hair on fire by mistake or whatever it, it fucking smells I, yeah. I imagine pubes will smell just the same yeah you'd have thought yeah so Colin cleaned up the apartment um, and he removed anything that he thought might have connected him to the crime and it was while he was looking through Peter's personal effects that he found out that Peter was HIV positive uh, according to him, that discovery so incensed him that he put a condom into Peter's mouth and another into one of his nostrils. What the logic behind that was, I do not know. Imagine getting so fucked up at someone finding out they've got HIV that you put a, you put a condom up their nose. Why would that be the... Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, he also left two teddy bears in the... That was nice si- of him. In the, in the, no, the teddy bears were already there, but he turned them into the 69 position on the bed. Okay. Next to Peter's body. I mean, he's ahead of the game because, like, 69, lol, funny sex number. He's, apparently, he's worried that he's going to raise suspicion with the neighbours if he left. And that's never explained why he, th- he thought that. So Colin stayed in Peter's apartment till the following morning. He then gets the train home to South End. Wouldn't that be more... Sus- I mean, you, you don't know what Peter's like, whether he has... He has people come visit him or whatever, frequently. Exactly. I'd, I'd feel like I'd be more hidden running away at night yeah yeah it, 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 there's, there's no logic to this so again this comes from colin he disposes of his gloves his clothes and the shoes by throwing them out the train window um did he uh, bring spares with him yes he did okay. have a change okay that went much further than i thought it would because i didn't think he would think that far ahead i don't know if i would think that far ahead well he's he was lucky because modern trains certainly on our train line and we're not outing ourselves here, they don't have opening windows. So he was lucky that his trains actually had opening windows that he could, an opening big enough that he could hoik these things out. Don't trains, or is, that a, is it buses that have those little like flap you can open at the top? Some trains have those, but even though, could you imagine trying to get a pair of shoes through yeah, that? Yeah, this is like the, the, this is like the, the 80s. Uh, no, this is in the 90s, 1993. I reckon that'll still be there. Yeah, I, but, I reckon that would be. But, right, you're coming home from London to South End. Don't you think somebody would have noticed him trying to ram things through? These... A, even back then, I bet there's a lot of weird shit you see in London coming from trains, well, right? He, he must have got away with it because apparently he did this. It, we're talking five murders. He did this every single time. He uh, hoiked some stuff out. People are probably thinking, thank fuck, he's only throwing shoes out of the, the train window and not his own turd or something. Well, it, it could be a lot worse. Yeah, so... Apparently, Peter had a couple of dogs. Colin locked them in one of the rooms in Peter's flat um, before that murder. And then, he, obviously, he goes home. He calls the Samaritans to tell them where the dogs were in order just to make sure that they were released. Um, it, it's believed that Colin did that, so the, not to save the dogs, but to make sure that Peter was found. It's it's the the, the 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 mental gymnastics that has gone around his motivations behind there is a little bit odd. So the police obviously they found Peter's body, but they had they didn't know which way to go. They thought it was just an S and M game gone too far, and 
it, it was just, you know, they, they said, right, let's go and ask the gay community. They were not forthcoming, the gay community. They were not, they were not giving the police anything. The police... Just because they're gay doesn't mean they're into BDSM either. No. I, I know he is also part of the gay community, being gay himself. That makes sense, right? That's not a leap that they were trying to make. No, they, they knew he was gay. So that's why oh, they... Yeah, no, no, yeah, I'm saying, yeah. yeah. Um, so the police didn't have a good reputation. They often um, ignored gay-related abuse and crime. And the day before Peter's body was found, a new ruling had been passed, making S&M between consenting adults illegal. Um, no gay man wanted to come forward with the information unless they would get actually actually prosecuted themselves. Why, now, why was it illegal? Right. Now, this is the infamous, apparently, R versus Brown, otherwise known as the Spanner case after the police investigation that led up to it. So the police, the quick overview of what this was, the police got their hands on some films that they thought they were um, torture tape tapes yeah they thought it was snuff probably no 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 well maybe but they, it was extreme torture real extreme torture it turned out it was consulting adults involved in extreme snm it's bdsm snm is yeah sorry bdsm yeah so they were prosecuted even though there were no complaints and they were convicted is it like this uh fucking really hypocritical thing where it's like it's so uh, offensive to public, therefore you doing it in the privacy of your own home with three consenting people That's exactly should, what should it was. still be illegal kind That's of thing. Exactly when, what it was. when it's why okay, well but if I'm offended by the way that you cook a chicken unflavoured and assault motherfucker, you should go to prison. Like, who cares? It's two consenting adults in your own house. Do whatever the fuck you want. Yeah. If you're gonna get tied up by your ball bag against like a door frame, you do that. It's not hurting anyone else. Yep, that's exactly I wouldn't advocate for that, that'd probably hurt, but you know what I mean. They were convicted of um account of unlawful and malicious wounding. I don't know where the malicious comes into it because, anyway. I do know there's a thing though that um, I, I forget when it happened. This is probably going back about a decade. There were these two, there were these two people that were, they were like sort of like investigating cannibalism, and they, they did this thing where basically one guy had to sign a consent form to allow another man to that they removed a small portion of his leg. Like my portion was like I mean like a slither of like thingy okay. and then he can eat it and then taste it and see what it was like and I had to get like loads of approval consent loads of tests this and that because they wanted to like be able to describe and actually document what this kind of thing was it, it had, I, I don't even think it was even like i think it might be i don't know fucking someone like germany right so i can i can understand why even though it's two consenting people and they're doing something like where is the line for it to be made where it's now it's beyond a certain thing because even causing harm even though it's consensual there's a, there's a there's a line that can get crossed. So I'm, I'm wondering if you're thinking of the Armin Mewis case, and listeners probably will know the case I'm talking about. No, no, um, this thing was televised. Oh, yeah, like they like cooked it and ate it on telly. Now, now why I had to go through so many hoops because it was on television. But yeah, I, I know there's one guy that one guy wanted to get eaten, so he goes in like a bathtub. They kill him, he eats him, he puts him in the fridge. There's also one guy in Japan that killed a woman. That he went to school with or whatever, and then oh like, yeah, that ate one, her that's, ass yeah, that's, and that's, like, that's terrific, that thought. case, yeah. yeah, yeah. So going back to this case, this is bad enough. These guys were convicted, and they obviously appealed because, but the appeal judges, they didn't seem to quite get or understand the kink, and basically said the defence could not be consent. There was even mention of one judge saying it's okay above the belt line, but not below the belt line. You know, as in wearing a belt, whatever you want to do. So if you want to beat someone above 
the belt, the waistline, you can do that, but beating them below, even with their you can't do it. So it's still actually illegal. There's um, some stuff that's illegal in the UK still, like you can't produce certain porn in the UK. Yeah. So Which is stupid. Again, why? It's concerning. I mean, obviously some stuff, right? But you know what I mean? Yeah. So the police are not getting any any coming back with this case, and they, they didn't understand what was going on with Paul Peter. So two-month break. Colin decides he feels the need to kill again. So he returned to the pub on the 28th of May, 1993, looking for another victim. And that man was a 20, sorry, a 37-year-old librarian called Christopher Dunn, who told Colin he liked to be dominated and invited him back to his flat in Willstone. So after watching a pornographic video, Colin told Dunn to go off and get ready. And he found him in the bedroom, naked, except for a studded belt and a body harness. Now... The MO, the modus operandi, was roughly the same as before. He made Dunn lie face down on the bed. Colin tied his feet together and handcuffed him. Once again, he beat him and tortured him, holding a lighter flame to um, Dunn's testicles before suffocating him to death by stuffing a piece of cloth in his mouth. Now, this time, Colin, you know, I said, yeah, I don't know how he could afford to go up and down to South End um, because he was unemployed. He decides to, um, this was costing him money. And so he he. Oh, did him! This costing him money. You've killed two people yep. at this point. This guy, <laughs> this this guy thought he was going to meet someone, and then he's going to get a good nut out of this, and he doesn't. He ends up getting murdered, right? <laughs> he, oh, oh, it's costing me money having to do yep. this. He he, oh. he he before he killed him, he'd forced him to hand over his um, bank card and his pin number. So he cleaned up the crime scene again. Stayed until he felt it was safe. Then he got rid of the gloves and shoes that he'd worn, uh, and he went to the bank and withdrew two hundred pounds from Christopher's Christopher Dunn's account. Would well, there have been CCTV in the bank in in the nineties? It's got to be right. Yeah, but they're quite often. They, no, if you using the outside cash point machines, those things you you could be looking at a Martian. Yeah, they call it in loads of shit, and it yeah. would have been their shit now. It would have been bad then as well. Yeah. Yeah, and if you know where they are, just put your finger over it job done isn't it really so two days after the murder a friend discovered christopher's body so on the 30th of may 1993 the police again assumed a sex game had gone wrong and didn't link christopher and peter's deaths together so six days after christopher dunn was murdered colin goes back to the pub for another victim is there no link that the fact these guys have been from were from the same pub each time i would have thought Let's not go to the same pub every six days and pick up someone to kill. Eventually, there's going to be no one left going to the pub, right? That seems like really basic police investigation. You would have thought. But if, if they're run as separate investigations, um, the link wouldn't have been made. Okay, when they put it in the database, location, this pub. Oh, look, that flagged up there as well. It's highly unlikely there was the right database that would have, uh, would have pulled that information together. It was probably Excel spreadsheets. Probably wasn't even Microsoft Access at that time. So he goes back to the pub uh, and he picks someone else up. And he was a 35-year-old, Perry Bradley III. He was the son of a serving US congressman. So he picked up a posh boy. You yeah. got numbers in your name. Yeah. Calm down. Businessman from Texas. So Colin follows Bradley to his Kensington apartment. Um, just suggested he tied Bradley up as a form of foreplay. Bradley wasn't into that. He wasn't interested. But he gave him when Colin told him it was a necessary element for him, for his own arousal. So, it, yeah, fair enough, you know. 
Colin tied Bradley up face down on the bed and he put a noose around his neck. He then demands Bradley's um, cash point card and the pin and threatened to torture him with a cigarette lighter if he didn't, you know, give it to him. So Bradley, you know, said, I'll come to the cash point with you, but he's got, no, just give me the pin, go to sleep. And he did. So while he was asleep, Colin killed him by slowly tightening the noose around the neck that he, he, he placed around him. Okay, there has to be a line. No way he's just going to fall asleep whilst having been tied up and slowly tie, tightening the noose. He's not like a fucking frog that you can slowly increase the temperature of the pan and the frog doesn't realise. What the fuck? Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm saying. This comes from Colin. This is why I don't, don't believe most of it. Some of it's going to line up, obviously, but no. Um, apparently, the first murder we had the teddy bears, didn't we? He put a, he found a doll or something and put this one on. What type of doll? It's not said, but he put it on Bradley's body. So he did the the clean up. He found a hundred pounds apparently lying in the apartment, uh, and he went to the bank with the cash point card, obviously in the pin, and he got another two hundred pounds. And again, the police didn't link it. They actually thought that the mafia were behind Bradley's death because his dad was a US senator. I'm not quite sure what, how they got to that conclusion, but there must have been something hidden away that we don't know about. Colin, apparently, at this point, was becoming frustrated um, the failings of the police to link the first three murders and the lack of publicity that they were getting. Um, three days after his last murder, Colin decides to kill again. So he goes back to the pub again. He's becoming like prolific, isn't he? He's doing. Yeah. He's. This is frequent. Yeah, he picks up um, a thirty-three-year-old chap called Andrew Collier, who was a warden at a sheltered housing complex, which is um, in the UK. It's older people, or sometimes people with physical or mental problems. Um, they live in usually bungalows, sometimes flats, and they have somebody that lives on site that's always on call if they need them. So that's what he would have been, you know, they're, they're there to support them. Do you think, so, I was going to ask a question, but it's already kind of been answered, given this is the third murder now that's happened, and Colin himself has said that the police didn't make the connection, and that's annoyed him, that the police weren't aware that a murder could be sort of done at random. Initially, what wasn't the the consensus that it has to be someone that you know, there's a reason why you've done it, not that they just happen to fit a criteria. Like, say, for example, you like killing people that are five foot three and blonde. You, you kind of answered your own question. What eventually does come out that the reasons that they didn't um, put these murders together, even at this stage, was latent homophobia. There was a, a huge, great investigation into it. And they admitted that they were homophobic. They actually completely ignored... They just didn't care that it was... They did, just didn't bother. A bunch of queens being slayed, as it were. Yeah, I mean, they probably ran all three investigations at that point completely and utterly separately. They hadn't put the pub together into this mix, which would have raised all sorts of alarm bells to normal people. And they also blamed Paul Bradley's one on the fact that his dad's a US senator. Do you think that would have been a bit of a scandal back in the day that a US senator's son was gay? Oh, yeah. Oh, heck, yeah. Um, I don't know which side of the house um, this senator was. And I've got vague memories of this case. Um, and it only, literally did only hit the headlines because he was the son of a US senator. But there were no connotations at the time when these murders were happening that would have led the general public 
watching these on just you know the the ordinary local London news because we've got L- London news. They don't live in London. We were in the catchment area. We could actually get London news, and there was nothing. You would never have known that this would have been that there was anything to put any of these cases together. You really wouldn't have done. Not until the end. When at the end, as soon as I saw a picture of the victim, I went, "Oh yeah," hmm. but I'll get to that anyway. So. They, he picked him up, they picked up um, Colin picked up Andrew Collier, who worked as a warden, as I said, and then returned to Collier's Dalston flat, where he consented to being tied up on the bed and handcuffed. Once again, where's your bank card, where's the pin? He apparently refused. Um, made no difference. Colin, Colin strangled him. And again, this is where this is where the reporting may or may be wrong, because there is definitely one case where Colin Ireland found paperwork that said he was HIV positive. This in the reporting is in this case when he found Andrew Collier was HIV positive and yet the reporting originally said it was the first victim. So again, there's something wrong in that. But anyway, apparently um, he got angry again, um, used his lighter to burn various parts of his body and then he strangled his cat. Why? Yeah. Um, he put a condom on Andrew Collier's penis and another on the cat's tail. And he positioned it so the cat's mouth was around... Oh, for fuck's sake. His, yeah, you can, you can imagine, yeah. So... Uh, Colin took the mug he'd, he'd drunk out of when he was there, he'd found £70 in the flat, and he left next morning. It seems really good at cleaning up from this. It's quite odd how he's, he's taking everything. He's, he knows to dispose it. I know he's done the research from it. He's, and again, I know it's the 90s, so they didn't quite have the same method they do now to find people like this, but he seems really efficient at cleaning up. Like he, he remember to take the cup with him. Yeah. Most people at these points, I know this is the fourth time he's done it now, but he's just really good at it. He remembered to take the cup with him. Yeah. I mean, sure, he kind of fucked with the cat, which annoyed me now. I'm annoyed. All right. But you remember to take the cup, yeah. at least. So the police, At least, he says, as yeah. if that fucking matters. The police finally do link two of the murders due to the similarities of the scene, um, and as well as the, the use of the condoms, and they were now beginning to suspect the work of a serial killer, and they'd started to collate the information they'd also lifted a set of fingerprints from a window frame in andrew collier's flat and they later discovered they were colin islands obviously colin had had a long prison record so his fingerprints would have been on file on the 12th of june 1993 colin called kensington police station claiming that he'd killed four men and they had to stop him from killing again He then called Battersea Police Station, asking them if they were interested in the murder of Peter and why had they stopped the investigation. He told them he would kill again, as he always dreamed of committing the perfect murder. So Colin's fifth and final victim was 41-year-old Maltese chef Emmanuel Spiteri, who enjoyed dressing in leather, which is what the pub specialised in. And this is the case I remembered. So on the night of the 12th of June, they met at the pub and they went to Spiteri's flat in Catford. So straight away, Colin 
binds Emmanuel to his bed, handcuffs him, puts a noose around his neck, demands his, you know, cash point card and pin. Didn't get it. Colin strangled him with the noose, cleaned up, and he watched television till he felt it was safe to leave next morning. But this is different. He attempted this time to set fire to the flat. He hoped the whole block would catch fire. He's just up in the ante, isn't he? He's getting brave. Yeah. Yeah, he's escalating. Yeah. Apparently the fire went out in the Emmanuel's bedroom where it had been started, so it wasn't very much of a fire starter. Even though he tried setting a fire to... He'd set fire to um, somebody else's belongings when he was in Borstal, didn't he? So you'd have thought he would have had a bit of an idea about it, but anyway... So he had a two-month gap after the first murder, didn't he? But he's now killed four times in 17 days. 13th of June, 1993. Colin rings the police again. I didn't, don't know which station he rang this time. He told them to look for a body at the scene of a fire in South London. He also told them that he'd read many books on serial killers and... Um, he, he apparently, according to the books, serial classification by the FBI, the killer had to reach five victims. He said he could now stop, as he'd killed five times. And he just wanted to see if he could do it, and he probably wouldn't do it again. Two days later, Spiter, Emmanuel Spiteri's landlady called the police to report his death because they hadn't seen him gone in there and found, you know, Colin thought the, flight, the, 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 the flat would have gone up, and it just didn't, it went out. So a huge publicity campaign began. I remember this. There were press conferences. Um, they had, you know, they had to admit that five homosexual men had been murdered and they were now linking them as a series, both pathologically and forensically. And the murders, um, two murders already been connected, but the other three were now added into the list. So this um, police... Detective Superintendent Ken John, he appealed to um, the gay community to be on the alert and to let friends know of their whereabouts if they went anywhere with a stranger. And he speculated at the time that the killer may have had AIDS and that that was the possible motive um, as, as revenge. So on the 17th of June... He, he again. He 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 made this. made a, a direct appeal to for the killer to give himself up, saying he wanted to help him. And uh, talking about pride, the police handed out flyers. Uh, there was fifty thousand people there in that year, and they appealed for anyone with information for the murders to come forward. Four psychologists and an ex FBI agent and a serial killer specialist were consulted by the police. And they came to the conclusion between them that the killer was fueled by violent fantasies, but each murder was never as good as the fantasy, and therefore he was driven to kill again. The killer himself was not homosexual, but posing as a gay man in order to attract his victims. He was well organised, probably of large build and physically strong, which made him confident in his ability to overpower his victims. So... On the 24th of June, 1993, the police issued a description of a man who'd been seen with Emmanuel Spiteria on the train from Charing Cross to Hither Green on that particular night. And that description was male, aged 30 to 46 feet tall, clean shaven, blah, blah, blah. Um, they produced an EFIT from that. And then they produced a picture of a week later 
with um, taken on the train security camera. So there were security cameras on the train and they actually produced a picture of Colin Island. I actually remember the, um, they produced a photograph of Emmanuel Spiteri and it was that, as soon as I saw him, I thought I knew exactly what it was about and I knew exactly the type of... Because he was, he was dressed like Freddie Mercury from Crazy Little Thing Called Love. It was it was pretty obvious. So apparently this e-fit that the police had produced matched this train security camera. So they, they showed the two of them side by side and they got over 40 calls, and which some of them were from men saying that they'd seen or talked to the man in that Colherm pub. So for some bizarre reason, 19th of July, Colin Ireland went to a solicitor in Southend-on-Sea and told him that he was with Emmanuel Spiteri on the night in question. He confirmed that it was him on the train security cameras, but said he hadn't killed him, and he claimed to have left him in his flat with another man. But this information, combined with the fingerprints that Colin had left on Andrew Collier's window ledge, was enough for him to be arrested. Obviously, say the police knew him, they knew where he was. And they charged him with Andrew Collier's murder on the 21st of July. Two days later, he was charged with Emmanuel Spiteri's murder. And Colin was sent to prison on remand, where he, he, he continued to maintain his innocence. It wasn't me, Gov. But eventually, 19th of August, this is only a couple of weeks away, Colin confessed to the murders of five, all five men and showing no emotion whatsoever in his statement to the police, he emphasised four particular points. Firstly, he had not been under the influence of drugs or alcohol at the time of the murders. Secondly, that he was not gay or bisexual, even though he'd once worked as a bouncer at a gay club in Soho. It's, it, it's always that same shit that makes me laugh. It's like, yeah, I fucking killed these five people. I'm not gay, though. I didn't touch their dicks. No. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, it, it just really makes me laugh. Yeah, he, I'm not gay. Well, yeah, <laughs> he says frequenting a gay bar or a gay pub in London, so, enough that the the, the regulars recognise him. I go him. Oh yeah, that's like Stabby Steve. We know him. So he said so he, he four points. His third point was he was not undressed or engaged in any sexual activity with his victims. Again, not gay. Yeah, and it gained no sexual thrill from the murders. Fourth, that he'd held no grudge against the gay community and that he had chosen gay men as his victims simply because they were easy targets. That, I believe, because he kept going for people that were um, into BDSM and being tied up, who specifically went for bottoms, so that he could... They would have any excuse to be tied up and they'd already... They'd just comply and do it straight away. So that I can agree with. That makes sense. Yeah. Because it's going to be much harder to pick up a woman like that and, and have the same results. Yeah. He claimed it was, I'm suspecting this is, um, th these aren't his words, but it was extreme male deviancy that triggered his anger, which had began with his brushes with um, these paedophiles or pederasts when he, was, when he was, you know, 12, 13. He said his victims were all deviants um, who just happened to be gay. He saw himself as ridding society of vermin and he wanted recognition as a superior person. So you don't think they were his words? 
no, that, that that language doesn't come across as his words to yeah, me. Yeah, and considering he said, oh, I've got nothing against the gay community, but the fucking vermin. Mm. No, that 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 doesn't make sense. No. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. Please don't clip that in of context. That sounds really bad. <laughs> yeah. So, as as he confessed, there was no trial. Um, and on the twentieth of August, nineteen ninety three, at the Old Bailey in London, Colin Ireland was sentenced to life imprisonment for each of the five killings. So we've got one. Life imprisonment for each of the five. That was not August 1993. But on the 22nd of December 2006, Colin was one of the last 35 on the whole life tariff list that we've mentioned before. So he was sent to Wakefield Prison along with all the others on that list. Robert Morsley, who was in episode 19. They're never getting out. They are in for life. Colin, apparently, wasn't finished killing, though. If rumours are accurate, and these stories are completely unofficially, uh, sorry, completely unconfirmed, the officially, they won't do it, said that Colin apparently strangled a cellmate. It was a convicted child killer, but no charges were filed against him since he was under this whole life tariff, and there's no, no harsher penalty. I don't know about that one. You'd have thought that the victim's family might have said something, but... Uh, I don't know. Maybe not, if yeah. you're, it Was that other guy also on a permanent life No, tariff? he was just... Just dip- another prisoner. Yeah. But then again, a lot of them, if you kill a chomo in prison, a lot of people sort of commend you for that in prison, at least. And again, if the, other, if the victim's family were like, oh, what about his rights, blah, 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 they probably don't care because he's in prison for being a child molester. Yeah. Um, some of it's verifiable because... Uh, Apparently, he was moved from uh, Wakefield to Whitemore Prison, and it was a maximum security area. But at some point, he gets sent back to Wakefield. Now, Wakefield are these, you know, serious categories. I just don't think they could cope with him at Whitemore. And it's the best place that's suited to, to deal with somebody like him. So in early 2012, apparently he fractures his hip, and he ends up using a Zimmer frame. And 10 days later, he was found face down in his cell and taken to the hospital centre or the healthcare centre at Wakefield Prison. And he was declared dead on the 21st of February 2012 at the age of 57. Subsequent autopsy declared that his cause of death was pulmonary fibrosis, which was a lung disease. So at that point, we're going to take a coffee break and come back with a case autopsy. And if people do actually go for a coffee break during this, can you comment on something on Twitter or on Instagram? Because I've really, I, I, I just want to know. I wonder if people actually do this as well. We, I, I've kind of got feedback from people that I know personally, but I want to actually like listeners. Anyway, co- cue the coffee break. Hello, so back from the coffee break. This is the case autopsy bit where we kind of chat shit and then all the background stuff around it, some of the, the final details, weird things that we found, well, mothers found through researching the case yes so there's a lot of talking heads on this one as expecting um lot there's loads of well-known psychologists and psychiatrists have talked about this loads of documentaries blogs and the likes all the talk about his sexuality um but it's the new year's resolution bit that was tucked away and it's it's not really discussed what was it again his new year's resolution was going to be that this year he was going to become a serial killer and that was the bit that made me go, 
Oh, right, let's do this one. I know the stats on how many people don't actually achieve their New Year's resolutions, but fair play, well done. He actually, he, he did it. Um, <laughs> it's like, it's like one, only like one in five people do it, and apparently when it's just murder some gay dudes, it's really easy to do, apparently. I don't know. Uh, yeah, one, one of the... Um... The reported things is when he, because he, he got fed up with this, obviously, he was ringing the police saying, you know, come on. He eventually said, if you don't catch me, I'm going to be doing one a week. Um, yeah, th- that was weird. He said that, he was, well, um, he, you'd said that he said that he got frustrated about not being found and he wanted people to find the bodies. That's why he says blah, blah, blah. But he, keep, he kept wanting to do them. So that's just, he just wants to get caught or he wants the attention from it. And I don't understand, that's that's a theme or a trait that runs with a lot of these killers is that they can't, they want to be found. Right, if you've ever watched, and you probably have caught the back end of it, a lot of these, um, you know, like things like Criminal Nines, they say they're, you know, that they they say they're devolving at this stage and they want to be caught, they need to be caught. But I don't know how much of that is just myth for the TV. But anyway, so we've got rubbish reporting. So as usual, we've got what appear to be myths all over the place, um, confusing on the reporting. There's a lot of things where he said he was age six or seven where he was in foster care, but it actually does seem that he was age 10 years old. And I think that would have a difference on the formative, how he responds to things. The abusive childhood is often described as that, but it wasn't actually abusive the way that most people would think. He was bullied... Abuse doesn't just have to be as simple as act, like physically hit. It could be if you're completely ignored, not given any care, love, nurture, yeah. and affection. It isn't literally, oh, you weren't twatted around the head with a belt, or oh, you're not abused. That's not what it means. No, I know, but it wasn't. I know, I'm not. I know, no, I'm not saying that. That's what you're saying it is, but I'm, there's more than just you here. There's at least a couple of hundred people, whatever. Figure out the numbers that will listen to this and hear it. That will also be agreeing as well. I'm just sort of yeah. saying that there isn't just simply abuse, and we don't really know what happened to him through his stint in, in foster. The, the foster care no. where what that could mean and you could argue that being taken away from your parents when by all accounts is going pretty well that alone is abusive in itself well the difference the di- well yeah you've made a good point there but he wasn't taken away he was given up um but as i said he says subsequently that he had a very close and warm relationship with his mother so he probably was told that you know yeah, we're but struggling I bet norman bates would describe that as well yeah so it like just because like a kid or someone or a child or a child or a person that's that's within that relationship themselves, they're describing it as yeah, it's loving. People that are in toxic relationships wouldn't necessarily describe it as toxic at the time. That's or true. Or if that's all you've known, that's true. That is what you'd consider that because it because if if it can get worse, and it's only just bad for you, that's good. You know. Yeah. No, that's that's very good point. Very good point. Um, we'll never know now. You'd get that well, in a fucking cracker, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um. One thing that's always reported about him, and I think it's an absolute myth, is that he was in the army. Now, is that something he said or something? That's it's reported? just something that's always reported, and it, it, it comes. I'll, I'll go into it a bit further on. Apparently, he did try to join the French Foreign Legion twice, but they rejected him. And they'll normally take anybody, French Foreign Legion. Now. I knew someone... Was it because he's not French? No, it's got nothing to do with it. They just rejected him. For whatever reason. And they will, the French Foreign Legion, I don't know if they will now, but they did at one point. They would take anybody. It didn't matter what your background was. Um, and they say he tried twice. But I, I knew someone way back, way back, friend of a friend, who was in the army. 
uh, once at a party, probably about 1983, I saw a tattoo um, which said, last of the Borstal boys on their arm. And as they were abolished in 1982, this lad had passed his basic training because he was, he was in the army, as I said. Maybe Colin did do basic training and washed out. 12 weeks is usually basic. Um, the army will ignore, British army will ignore juvenile convictions, but they couldn't ignore his adult ones. So I think it's unlikely that he ever actually was in the army. Is it they have to be of a certain type of conviction or can it, is it just anything? It's it's a criminal conviction. You can have parking tickets and yeah, you know yeah. speeding tickets, but a criminal conviction, the army, they won't let you in with it. Um, there's a mention that Colin developed a taste for paramilitary clothing and survivalist training. Remember I said he'd met his first wife at survivalist convention. Yeah. So apparently, again, he was frequently camping out on the Essex moors. And I'm sat there going, what are you talking about? The Essex don't have moors. (laughs) Um, So I did some digging. And there's actually a wood called the moors, which is in Braintree in Essex. So I think whoever wrote that article probably never looked at a map of the UK. He never seemed to go further north than London. And went to Devon, which is the southwest of the UK, with the pub landlady. And he could have gone out down the moors down there, but I doubt it. Mm. Why wasn't he caught out earlier? I said he'd, he'd, he'd learnt from reading those books. He was a, apparently he was aware of what's called geographic pro- profiling that helps investigators locate the killer. Apparently most killers, these, they, they commit a crime in a certain radius about seven miles from where they live. And they, they, they reckon for this reason Colin chose London as his murder ground, deliberately misleading the police and keeping them far away from his South End on Sea home. So he's done these murders in a seven mile radius, but it's miles away from South End on Sea. So why he so why did he ring them to say, you know, come and catch me? Why did he ring the Samaritans? Was it to let the dogs out or was it to make sure that Peter's body was found? I don't think he cared either way for the dogs. I generally don't. Going back to the point where he says he was approached four times by those paedophiles or pederasts, I know there's no type for victimology. You can't. But to me, and I'm a bit plain devil's advocate here, he sounded to me like he was trying to make him out to be attractive or at least wanted by someone. And somehow that all got twisted up in his head. I, I do know it's quite common that if you're a victim of sort of, if you're a child, for some reason, if it's happened to you once by one person, it, it's more likely for it to happen to you again by another person. It's either because of, like, it's almost like people that do that can sense. I've heard of that, yeah. That it, that the yeah. child's sort of vulnerable, or if a child's got certain, it's got a habit of being trusting because people are nice, they'll talk to strangers or whatever, then that, that makes you more susceptible to being in those places where those bad things can happen. And I know it, it's the same, like, birds of a feather flock together. So, like, if you've got a bunch of paedophiles, they probably know each other. They probably know the kind of kids they can go for. Yeah. I'm not saying this; these things ever happened to him, but these are, he's like he's like optician. Yeah. So did, did, was there like a longingly look into his eyes sort of thing? Like, and then sees him at a local cinema. Yeah, and then it's like, yeah. I've looked at your eyes. How does that work? It, it, again, I I have my doubts. And again, was it him that was sta- like staring over the the? No, he had the one, cubicle. Or he, was had that someone one sta- else? he had one staring down at him from the top of the cubicle, according to him. Again, he's he's not. There's, I, there's no way to to confirm these things. So, it, it, like you say, it could be the to make him seem uh, attractive or wanted by saying these things, but it's just speculation. Isn't again, it? he's he's descri- he's not he's not a physically attractive lad by any stretch of the imagination, but he seems when he's older, 
he he definitely has he he got rotten teeth. I know there's a joke, standing joke about Britons having rotten teeth, but he did have rotten teeth. Um, and it's it's like he did end up with some kind of gift of the gab, but all the women that he ended up going with do seem to have vulnerabilities, and I'll explain one of those in a second. Um, apparently, again, he was frustrated at this low playing job in jobs he had in unskilled areas. But he's also reported as being a chef in some places. Now, I doubt that. Certainly not professionally trained. Um, you can call yourself yeah, a but, chef. Yeah, but to work in a pub thing, I don't think you have to be defined as, like, a. you don't, you don't need classical training or having gone to, like... I think to be a chef, don't you have to go to, like, catering school initially and then you can specialise it? Because I, yeah. I have a friend who did that. Yeah. And it's... I don't think you need that for if you don't want to work in, a like, an official restaurant whereas working, like, a pub restaurant. And that's no... There's no comment on the the service industry for people that work in pubs. I'm sure it's hard like that, but I don't think you probably need you probably don't need a qualification for it, especially then. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, so you could have been. Yeah, but I've I've got no doubt if he just stayed put somewhere, he could have probably worked his way up. But he's always going to be held back by his criminal record. It's inevitable. But he does manage to find work frequently. But somehow or another, he always mucks it up. He either quits or he gets fired. Now, a few times on these TV shows, he's, he's remotely diagnosed, the best way to describe it, by these TV shows as a psychopath. But I never find any official diagnosis. But being in Wakefield Prison, one would suggest there's certainly something there as the full definition of a, of a psychopath would appear to fit his um, behaviours, which would be somebody who's repeatedly uh, engaging in criminal antisocial behaviour without remorse or empathy, um, patterns of lying, cunning, manipulation, glibness, exploitation, heedlessness, you know, all, all his behaviours. Now, we talked about, or I talked about, because I do a lot of that, um, when the police eventually consulted these psychologists, they consulted an FBI profiler. It was actually Ressler, Robert Ressler. And it's actually said that Colin read a book where Ressler said, remember he rang them up and said about these five deaths and that's where he refers it back to being the serial killer Colin took that to mean that he needed to kill five and Wrestler got blamed for it even though the opinion at the time was three people to be a serial killer why did he, he that's a fucking reach to blame him for it he's not the yeah. one that killed the people sure he went based off what he said but this man's deranged he's killing people and putting cats off people's knobs like that's not the kind of person that thinks things through logically if someone said no you need to kill four people it needs to be on a full moon that's what he would have tried to do it doesn't matter what it is it's not his fault the fuck yeah. But honestly, Wrestler had to put out a statement and said that he's... No, but you can eat my book. whole asshole. It doesn't matter. That's not my fault. Yeah. It's a bit like blaming, you know, violent films or violent video games. He said his book can't be to blame no, for this behaviour. No, yeah. no. It's it, it, bloody weird. And they, they admitted that Colin didn't appear to have a copy of the book. And he went on to say, I'm going to kill more anyway. Yeah. So, so he would have he would have like gone past this, this arbitrary five number figure anyway. So, uh, well, I think he, I think he rang up probably count. at four, said, you know, if you don't stop, I'm going to kill more. And then he said five, I don't need to. But again, this is all this myth and legend stuff that's blown up. They couldn't find Colin. And, and wasn't it because they found out some stuff because of the fifth one in the first place? So that's why he got caught because he killed Emmanuel. Yeah. So you could say by him killing the fifth one, that's why there was this specific yeah, fifth one on this day. Yeah, because they got CCTV. Yeah, that, yeah. that if, they, if he didn't kill that fifth one on that day, then there could have been number six, number seven, number eight. He could have kept going because it's because he essentially got caught that he handed himself in, didn't he? Mm. So if you want to spin it in a good way, you can say it was kind of because he did the fifth one. 
that he got caught in the first place. So stop the six, seven, and eight, etc. Yeah. Um, going back to wrestler though, Paul Pucker, um, he'd say that the police asked he was part of the one that, that created the, a profile, the secondary profile. I know profiling is problematical for some for people, but as long as it's not the only tool the police use, I think it can be helpful. Same as anything, too much reliance on, say, CCTV. Um, they, they get tunnel vision. Now, the first psychologist they went to for a profile, I, I know of him. He appears on many, many true crime shows in the UK, and his professional title always seems to change. So I'm a bit about him. Um, there's another one that's always labelled as a criminal psychologist, but again, after listening and thinking, as an opinion, um, I had some doubts and I did some digging. They're not a criminal psychologist, and apparently the highest qualification they have actually have is a counsellor. So, yeah, um, any time that I watch anything now, they have an expert wielder. I actually check up on their qualifications. So going back to poor old wrestler, yeah, he had to put out a statement and he was vindicated in the end because the police admitted that they couldn't find any way that Colin may or may not have had that book. Um, they admitted he could have got it from a library. So, you know, it's again, it's all down to what Colin tells them. This needing to be wanted and possibly the fact he needs to be interesting his wife, Virginia, his first wife, she was actually a wheelchair user. And I wondered if that was a part of his attraction to her. She probably needed him. It was also mentioned in one place that he was 18 years old before he got his first girlfriend. I said, I know he wasn't attractive, but no. And I think it, it goes to self-esteem somehow. And yet he cheated on every wife and every girlfriend. So, But if you, but if you can successfully cheat on someone so many times... Surely that satisfied that part of your body, the, the part of your psyche that says I'm unwanted or I'm on. No, because it's, it becomes like this feedback loop, doesn't it? Possibly. Yeah, I think that's. So there's no mention anywhere about his brother, apart from the fact he's got one, the relationship they had. Um, he said that he, that, you know, talked about his mother, but if he had such a warm relationship with his mother, why did he run away to London at sixteen? Just because you had a warm relationship doesn't mean you want to be there. You might might hate the area, might resent your stepdad, might resent whatever. You might just because you've got a good relationship doesn't mean you want to stay somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Again, all true. It's, it's not that simple. Um, people that often come from rich, loving families. I say rich doesn't I mean like in a, in a quite literally like a financial sense, and they run away and they'll often like just be like homeless or something because they just don't yeah. want to be there. Yeah. But again, this is all coming from him. So how much are lies? How much half truths? You might not. You might not want to admit that he's, he had a shitty home life in the first place. Yeah, that's again. But I, I think he, he, I think he wanted to be famous. I did. I think that's the whole reason behind all of this. He felt he was a nobody. Now, now, now you can just make TikToks and make podcasts and get famous, yeah. or not. Or not. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we we talked as well. We had. Sorry, can we get on to what he was called at some point by the press or other gonna, people? I was just going to set you up. You go on then, tell everybody. I was. It was known up. as the gay slayer, right? Um, it's like if you got sent. To, <laughs> I wrote a little thing about this because I, I had to Google names for serial killers so I could write this joke. And you can tell I don't I don't do anything with true crime because I spelled serial as the food, like with a C. <laughs> and I'm like serial killer. I'm like that ain't that ain't what I meant. Yeah, right. So <laughs> in prison, you got people called like Angel Face, Alligator Man, Apache, the Butcher of Berlin. He's like, what's your name? You're like, the gay slayer. That's the shittest name. It's like, it's like if you're an animal and like you're, you're called like the screaming hairy armadillo. Again, that's a shit name. Imagine being called the gay slayer. That's the, and yeah, it just fucking got me. This guy's name was the gay slayer. Thought it was uh, yeah. It, it's it's almost it's a sad sad little end to a sad little life, isn't it? 
He always wanted to be somebody. He always wanted to be something. He wanted to be famous, and he's known as the, the gay, gay slayer. Killer. They couldn't even be bothered to come up with a decent nickname for him. It was. It's like, I bet he's like, no, it's the like slayer of gays instead of the gay slayer. It's like, it's like Miss Bouquet and Miss Bucket. Fuck me. Yeah, yeah, yeah Hyacinth Bucket, yeah. Was there anything else before I, j- I jumped in with him who called the gay slayer? I- I've had that in my head since we've been recording, and, and this has been like an hour and 20 minutes. And I'm like, when is she going to say the thing about gay slayer? Because it's just fucking no, weird. No, I was, I was Because you've got, you got, you got like the BTK killer, you've got like, I don't know, some sort of like highway murderer man, and you're called the gay slayer. I'm just going to finish off on the final note. The victims were Peter Walker, age 45, a choreographer, Christopher Dunn, age 37, a librarian. Perry Bradley III, age 35, who was a businessman. Andrew Collier, age 33, a housing warden. Emmanuel Spiteri, 41, a chef. And that's it, folks. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in September, hopefully, with some... New artwork, potentially new sound, who cares? And just a final note there as well. This is why the advent of dating apps is probably a bit... Yes, be safe. I don't know, this whole podcast might have been an advert for Grindr. But on that note, we'll see you next time. Thank you very much for listening. Peace.